And he's like, don't tell me anymore. You got a research business where you do the research and you do the selling. I can't sell your company. It's not worth anything. There's nothing to sell. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Albert Einstein, strive not to be a success, but rather to be of value. Our guest today, John Worlow, has dedicated his career to helping others build businesses that are valuable to others. He's the founder of the Value Builder System, a software program that helps thousands of businesses build more value for customers and investors. He's also the best-selling author of three books, Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and his latest, The Art of Selling Your Business, which came out in January. He's also the host of Built to Sell Radio. John, welcome. Great to have you on the Elevate podcast. It's great to be here, Bob. So as I mentioned, I, uh, you, know, you taught a, a class at a program called EMP that you were actually in, and I was in later through EO, and I, I'm excited to talk about a lot of stuff. A lot, I, a lot of the stuff you said in that class, I have seen come true, a lot of the rules. Um, so it's been extremely valuable in, in, in the journey of our own business. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was a fun session. EMP, Entrepreneurial Master's Program. It was, uh, it was fun to get a chance to speak there for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of business growth and, and value creation there. So starting at the beginning, uh, you got a pretty sterly, early start to your entrepreneurial career. Did you always know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Or there were, were there any stories as a kid that sort of stood out to you as not not going in between the colored lines or coloring in between the lines? <laughs> they used to call me Johnny the they called me Johnny the Juice Man when I was in grade eight. It wasn't because I was on steroids. It was because I sold juice at the cafeteria. So maybe right. that was a bit of a <laughs> bellwether. That's usually a giveaway. Yeah, no, probably. So not not a straight A student. <laughs> I was not a straight A student. Yeah. No, in fact, I, I I didn't flunk out of college, but I left early. I took the stupidest thing. I I took communications, thinking, oh, this is going to be great, and it was turned out to be like a a hybrid between sociology and film. It was. <laughs> It was like me debating with all these like kind of feminists and really radical left people in, in this like big auditorium. And I just left and packed it in. But uh, that was my university education. So what'd you do from there? <laughs> I went to work at a radio station and I was in promotions and marketing. And I'd been to, do you know the Entrepreneur of the Year program? Have you yeah, ever heard of that? Yeah, thing? the EMIS program. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got a chance to go to the final gala dinner this goes back 30 years. So this is right in the beginning of the uh, the awards competition. Anyways, I got a chance to go to this dinner and see these stories of these incredible, like I had never seen anything like it, the, the sacrifice these guys, like mortgaging their homes to build these incredible businesses. And I said, you know, this would be a really cool radio show. And I, I went back to the radio station I was working at the time. I'm like, this is going to be great. We should, you know, and they're like, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, screw you. I'm going to, I'm going to do it on my own. So I, I founded a production company and, and actually got the show on the air. We actually did three years nationally syndicated in Canada. It was called Today's Entrepreneur. And I just interviewed entrepreneurs kind of like we're doing today. And I just said, like, what would you do differently? If you had known then what you know now, what would you do differently? And uh, it was, it was a great way to learn from some of the great masters how to, uh, how to think about entrepreneurship. So a lot of entrepreneurs know how to start a business, <laughs> get it started, right? I, I think that's the easy part. <laughs> well, for some people, that's the scariest part. For non-entrepreneurs, yeah. that's the scariest part. I think for the sure. true test of an, an entrepreneur, non-entrepreneurs just can't get themselves to start if they don't haven't predicted and can see the entire end game all laid out. And I'm always like, it just won't work that way. Even if you lay it out that way, it's not going to work that way. You start and it, you know, you hit your first landmine and, and you move. So. But but look, they're good at starting. Where where a lot of them fail is creating value beyond themselves, and and you know having optionality for what their business becomes, uh, and and having you know being able to get value out of the business. So this has been a big focus for you. But how did you sort of? When did you discover that, and how did you fall into that as sort of the core problem? Oh man, I I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> like it was yesterday. So I was running a, a quantitative market research business. This goes back again, probably 20 years now. And we had just a blue chip list of clients. We were working with Microsoft and IBM and JP Morgan. I mean, like 
you couldn't have had a better client list. And so I thought I was building this incredible business with these great clients because I'd always had the perception that someone would buy me, quote unquote, for my clients. So we were, I don't know, we were probably doing five or six million bucks in top line revenue. And so I thought I was sitting on a gold mine. And I and I went to see an MA guy, a guy's name is Perry Mielli in Toronto. And Perry said, yeah, yeah, come on in. And, and I said, what do you think it's worth? What do you think it's worth? And he said, well, you know, before I tell you what it's worth, let, let me ask you a couple of questions. And I said, shoot. He said, well, you do research. So like, who does the research? And I was like, oh, those are my research guys. And he's like, so you don't get involved. They're like Bank of America hires you. You're not involved in the research. I'm like, well, of course I, I would oversee the, re- I, you know, I'd approve it. And he said, okay, question number two, who does the selling? And I'm like, those are my sales guys. And he's like, okay, so American Express calls you. You don't take that call. You give that to your sales rep. And I'm like, okay, all right, fine. Sure. I'm involved in the selling, right? But I had, and he's like, don't tell me anymore. You got a research business where you do the research and you do the selling. I can't sell your company. It's not worth anything. There's nothing to sell. I'm selling you. (laughs) (laughs) And like, yeah. And, you know, and oh my gosh, I, you know, like the blood drain out of my face. Because at the time I thought, man, I'm sitting on this gold mine. And I just was like, oh. And it was like the, you know, the telling the the mom that the baby's the ugliest in the maternity ward. It was like not a it was not a good scene. Did you perceive you were less integral to your business? Or had you just told yourself this story that <laughs> I think the latter. I think I yeah. sort of told myself the story, but if I was honest, I think I was still pretty pretty involved. So I spent a couple of years, I looked at different business models. One of them uh, that I was really kind of keen on was the subscription business model. Cause there were these, like there was, there was uh, Thomson Reuters at the time, Gartner group at the time. Again, this goes back a long time, like Forrester, Gartner, Yankee, all these guys had these subscription based offerings. And so I thought, what if I transition this thing to subscription research as opposed to custom? Anyways, long story short, I did that transition Three years later, the company was acquired by a publicly traded company, New York Stock Exchange listed company uh, today, which is Gartner Group. So it, like, it all worked out, but I always remember that conversation with Perry and uh, just getting kicked in the teeth in, a, in the nicest possible way. So we could probably go through a lot of the misperceptions you had, but I'll, I'll go through all the ones I hear a lot from people sort of new to testing the value of their business. So it is another teacher in that class, uh, you know, Mitra, who says Re- revenue is is vanity, profit is sanity. <laughs> I, I remember being at this point and thinking that my business would be more the more I grew the revenue. And and as I talked to peers in the industry, I realized that is true if you're you know really below a, an enterprise level. But unless you're in software or whatever, I mean, businesses are valued on EBITDA, and I think people come to this realization way way too late. So love to. Tell us, I'm sure you have some stories on this too. Oh man, yeah, tons. Um, One that comes to mind, I just did a a podcast interview for Built This Cell Radio where I interviewed a guy who built a company. I don't want to share the name because it it actually isn't a very flattering story. We'll call it Acme. Yeah, Acme. And so (laughs) so he, he had a very seasonal business. The cash flow was very lumpy and he essentially sold on a transaction business model. So at Christmas time, he got tons and tons of revenue. And then in the spring, he'd have to buy his inventory and he would go in a cash flow deficit and, and then he'd do the whole thing again. Anyways, he built this company up to $15 million in revenue. So good size company. And when he sold the business, the best offer he could get was 25 cents for every dollar of revenue. And so there's an example on, on the one end, and we'll call it Acme. I'll, I'll name the other company that compares and contrasts to that. A company called Drip, which I don't know if you know Rob Walling. Do you know Drip, tiny startup? Mm, no, I feel like I know the name, but I don't know the company. No. Yeah, he's a, he's got a ton of stuff going on. Good guy to know. Anyways, he built a company called Drip, and he took the exact opposite approach. He subscribed to your theory, you know, revenue is vanity, <laughs> right? And so he kind of built this beautiful little app to do Drip marketing. And he was sort of a a craftsman about the whole thing. Had, I think, about a dozen employees. And he crested $2 million of annual recurring revenue when he was looking at offers in the 9 to 12 times top-line revenue. (laughs) Like, it's astonishing. I compare and contrast those two stories. Those are certainly on the on the very far outer edges of the spectrum, but both represent this idea that I think you rightly point out, Bob, is that, that revenue is kind of vanity and uh, value. I would just 
change it to value is sanity. <laughs> and the problem is, you know, is like the Inc. 500, I think it's, you know, it's celebrated. It, it, there are companies in there, you know, that are credit card processors that are showing, you know, they're 45 million in revenue when really like they really take 2% of that and then their profits kind of deducted from that. So I've, I've always felt like everyone gets pulled into that game a little bit where just like bigger is better. And there, look, there's some, there are some levels at which enterprise risk in a business goes down, right? You get to 10 million in revenue and it's, it's not about one client. It's not about one person usually uh, depending on the type of business, but we just break down. I, I it, It's obvious to people. It's not obvious to others, but just sort of why they're to in the eye of the buyer, why there's inherently more value, you know, in the business that figures out how to create recurring revenue, even if it's a lower amount of revenue. In the eyes of an acquirer, they're going to look at that and see that there's predictable revenue continuing beyond the tenure of the owner. Whenever there is an owner that's the rainmaker for the company, that's going to be a problem for a buyer because clearly they're going to pay you a check and, and you're not going to stay. And they know that. Even if you're on an earnout, they know the chances of you staying through it are, are very slim. And so they want to know, how's your business going to perform when you're gone? And so that's one. Two, particular financial buyers, so private equity groups, uh, family offices, really unlike a strategic, those are buying your future stream of cash flow. They see the profit your company is making, the EBITDA you're actually putting to the bottom line, and they want a piece of that. Now, the more predictable you can make that future stream of profit, the more bulletproof, the more they're willing to pay for it because they place a premium on risk, right? So you de-risk your profit. In other words, you consistently drive home profit year after year after year. And particularly if it's on some sort of recurring revenue model, a financial buyer is going to look at that and say, fantastic, this thing's just a cash machine. It's like a Swiss watch. It just keeps rolling over. Right. If the owner gets hit by a car, the, the revenue is still no there. Problem. Right? Yeah. No problem. Uh, whereas if it's lumpy or if it's seasonal or it's dependent on the owner, that's when you get the deep discounts. So tell us a little bit about the value builder system and, and what does it offer the businesses that they couldn't figure out on their own? Yeah. So the value builder system, essentially, we work with entrepreneurs to help them improve the value of their business. Uh, when a new entrepreneur comes to us, we have them do the test. It's about 15 minutes. Average score is 59 out of a possible 100. Those businesses trade about 3.5 times pre-tax profit. If you look at the businesses who go through the 12 steps in the system, those that get a 90 or greater at the end are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit. So basically double when they started. So it's a way to improve the value of your business. And I think what you will get in completing the value builder questionnaire is an outside in look at your company. You know, when you're when you're building a business, it becomes very myopic. We we I think become very myopic, right? We think about specific targets we're trying to achieve, employees we're trying to bring along, etc. The value builder system allows you to look at your business as though an acquire would. And they're going to point out things that that you might not have thought of. So it's like an audit. Kind of. Right? Yeah. I've referred to it as, as sort of like an MRI for yeah. your business, right? It's going to see stuff that you can't, basically. And so without giving us the whole thing, because people can check it out. So I'm, I'm, we'll talk about this more. The M&A market is very hot right now. Uh, there's a lot of consolidation. There's a lot of private equity. Now with COVID sort of coming out of a little bit of companies are out there. What's most likely? The person who's never looked at this before, thinks they have a valuable business, goes to market sort of on their own. What are the things that are most likely to get them into trouble or not in trouble, but they are going to be most surprised that they are just not ready and not even close to the valuation that they're hoping for? Wow, so much. I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah, I know. you talked about the recurring revenue. I mean, that's one. But that's what are some other sort sure. of gotchas where people are going to learn the hard way? Yeah, I mean, the biggest deal killer is going to be you don't have the information you need to answer diligence questions. And so when, when you sell a company, you basically go through a bit of an auction process. Usually there's a letter of intent. You sign a no-shop clause. And a no-shop clause essentially means you agree not to negotiate with anybody else during a period of due diligence where your acquirer checks out your company, what you basically said in the course of negotiations. That period is where there are a variety of information requests. And if you fumble the ball and in the information request, it takes you too long to get the data point. That's when they lose deal momentum. And oftentimes you get retraded on. Retrading is when a buyer will negotiate down from the original letter of intent. 
And that's one of the biggest sort of gotchas. The way to avoid that is doing what's called pre-diligence. And it sounds a little bit like due diligence, but it's different. Effectively, you're trying to forecast all the possible questions you might get and answering them before you go to market. And it's got kind of two main benefits. The first is obvious that it makes selling easier. The second, though, I learned from a guy named Michael Houlihan. So Michael Houlihan started a company called Barefoot Wine. Have you ever been to Trader Joe's and yeah, bought yeah, like yeah. the $6 buy? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So Barefoot, great wine company, kind of average price point, sold through Trader Joe's and lots of other places around the country. Anyways, Houlihan decides he wants to sell Barefoot. And he realizes that Ian J. Gallo is the largest winemaker in the United States. And he figures he's got one shot at selling to the granddaddy of the, of the industry. And so what most entrepreneurs would do is they kind of put together a like back of the napkin teaser and sort of take it to them and, and kind of ham-fisted their way through a negotiation. And Ian J. Gallo was a really sophisticated buyer. And Houlihan knew that. So what he did is the opposite. He went out and put together all of his pre-diligence, like binders and binders of binders of all the questions he is likely to get asked. And I said, why did you do that? First of all, you're an entrepreneur. That must have been crushing for your soul to yeah. do all that work, right? And he said, yeah, but here's the thing. Number one, it helped me get through due diligence. But number two, here's the surprising thing. When I went to E&J Gallo, because my decks were done and polished, they knew that I was for sale. I didn't even have to tell them that. Right. And so they knew that if I didn't sell to them, I was going to go right to their next best competitor and sell to their competitor. And without me having to, this is Houlihan's words now, without me having to threaten that or create some sort of auction, just the fact that I'd done my pre-diligence said a mountain about my preparedness and the fact that I was going to get a deal done. It was either with them or with their competitor. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. And also, look, I mean, this goes back to what your mom or kindergarten teacher told you, you know, first impressions matter. I'm sure I've, I've done calls with businesses that come in with a clean deck, organized thing, normalized earnings. Hey, we audited our financials. Like, you know, you're like, wow, these, these people have their stuff together. I've also seen businesses where they come in with a spreadsheet that's got a lot of things wrong with it, numbers that <laughs> don't add up. And otherwise you're like, wow, I don't think these people are very detail oriented. So, I mean, that first impression is, is pretty powerful. It's huge. And again, you're never going to get a second opportunity to express your profit and loss statement in the way that you want it expressed. And that sounds, that sounds uh, somehow mischievous or, or underhanded or illegal. 
you re- you point out, Bob, this idea of adjusted EBITDA. And that's a concept that not a lot of entrepreneurs are familiar with. Yeah. We, we explain both that and quality of earnings because that's another phrase they won't learn until it's too late in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, quality of earnings it goes back to diligence in the sense yeah. that oftentimes the quality of earnings is done by an accounting firm, which is part of a diligence process. And oftentimes people do a QV in a pre-diligence process. But adjusted EBITDA is where effectively you're trying to express your profit in the way that your acquirer will experience it. So when you sell your company, there are probably some expenses that you run through your company today. That beach vacation you took and claimed it was a a business expense when it was actually a personal trip. Those are not going to be incurred by your acquirer, right? Equally, if there are one-time expenses like uh, a legal battle that you had to fight once and it'll never happen again, or you moved offices and you'll never have to do that again, those are all one-time expenses. And in the process of normalizing your earnings, you effectively take out those exceptional expenses. And one of the biggest ones is, of course, your salary. So if you're paying yourself $50,000... Yeah, I was just going to... That's a number yeah. of these. You see that a lot, right? I'm the, as you said, I'm the CFO, CEO, uh, you know, head of, head of HR, and, and, and yeah, my salary is $50,000, and I'm taking the rest as a profit distribution, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a problem because an acquirer is going to say, oh, hold on a second. If I'm going to have to hire a general manager to run this business unit, and I'm going to have to pay him or her a whole lot more than 50 grand. So they're going to normalize the EBITDA and make your profit less in that scenario. Another scenario might be you're paying yourself $800,000 a year, and it would cost you $100,000 a year to replace you with the general manager. Well, then that's going to inflate, increase effectively your EBITDA by $700,000, the difference between what you're paying yourself and what you would have to pay a replacement. And so these sorts of adjustments are done. And they can have a huge impact on the value you get from your business. I remember one story, a guy interviewed for Built to Sell Radio, a guy named Ari Ackerman. And he built a little company called Bunk One. If you're yeah, we, this, I, Do you know about these guys? We use it every summer at my daughter's camp. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So yeah, I, I, it's a great business. I have to pay them to email my daughter. Like it's, it's great. Incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ari got the idea that like, you know, when you're at summer camp, you shouldn't have screens or computers. So, but still parents and kids wanted to communicate. So basically he created a platform whereby a parent could send a note to their kids and the kid would receive it as a, as a letter uh, without having to log on. I'm butchering the explanation, but the essence yeah. is, is true. And so Ari uh, got the idea that he might want to sell his company and, and got an offer for his business from a private equity group. And the private equity, it was below what he wanted for his business. And he said, look, guys, this just doesn't work. It's just not worth it to me. And the private equity group said, look, we can't budge past X times EBITDA. It's just our investors, our limited partners. Like we've said that we will never buy a company. They're bank partners too, right? You know, They're bank they're, partners. Yeah, exactly. They don't lend on future earnings. <laughs> they lend right. on actual earnings. Exactly. Exactly. So I can't remember what the multiple was, but let's just say it was eight for sake of argument. And they said, look, we can't go past eight because that's just our threshold. And so Ackerman, to his credit, said, okay, well, let's start to look at the earnings. And then he went through line by line by line and said, if you buy my business, you're not going to need this expense. You're not going to need, because you've already got six of these. You're not going to need this. You're not going to need that. And he went through and effectively normalized his earnings on how his business would perform in their hands, thereby increasing his EBITDA on an adjusted basis. So they still applied the same multiple, but the aggregate number in total was a whole lot more than the original offer. Long story short, Ari sold bunk one. That's the adjustments process. And again, it's it's something that we don't we don't think about it until the actual process of selling a company. And it's just one of the many things that no one teaches you until it's in many cases too late. Yeah. And look, those, as you said, they go both ways. Having the ones in your favor is great. You know, there's also some real nuanced things around like, uh, let, let's say your wife's the accountant, right? <laughs> there's two scenarios here. Your wife <laughs> or, or your wife is on the payroll and doesn't do anything, right? So that would be an ad back. Or your wife is doing, you know, is the controller of the business, as you said, but is doing it for $25,000 salary. Well, that's going to be a, a, a subtraction. And, and this is where I think, you, you know, I, I, look, I, I appreciate 
entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of times I found people when they go to do the thing the first time, you know, when you think when you're starting your business and you got the really cheap lawyer and then five years later, you're like cursing <laughs> that you didn't like get the better lawyer because everything's coming back to, to haunt you and is more mm-hmm. expensive. Again, typically when you're going through this process the first time and people try to represent themselves and do it themselves. And I, I think there's a whole world of service providers that know how to how to do this and put your business in the best light. And you you don't want to go out to the market and then come back with a lot of changes, as you said. And uh-huh. my, my, my experience is that the longer, the less you have organized, the longer your LOI period is going to be. The longer the LOI period is, the more there are going to be retrading and problems. Because if it's six months, you're going to do better than or worse than, you're going to be fundamentally exhausted by the end if you're at the point where someone could come in and offer you a 45 or 60 day close, you've done enough work to make them confident that, that, you know, that that's a tight window to, that, you know, they're in or out because most people like they get to the end of that six months and they're just at miserable and they do the deal because they're exhausted or they don't do the deal. Now their business is their business also usually suffers when they go through this process because it's a full-time job. Oh, for sure. For sure. Have you ever had Arik Levy on the show? No. Okay, so he's definitely yeah, he's a fantastic entrepreneur, and and he really reinforces this point about being ready and in particular having representation, like having someone professional that can do the deal for you. And by the way, I say this not because that's what I do for a living. I'm as a, we talked about earlier. I'm not an M and A professional, but I think they're worth their weight in gold. Arik Levy built uh, his first business was called Laundry Locker, where they installed lockers in laundromats where you could pick up your laundry when the laundromat was closed. A little bit like the Amazon Whole Foods. You know, you can get your Amazon locker at Whole Foods. So built this business, a good little business that he decides to sell does it himself, doesn't have representation, gets one offer. The offer gets retraded on, which means that it gets lowered during due diligence. And then at the end of due diligence, when they finally agree to a lower price, the acquirer turns to Arik and says, oh, I know we said we pay cash, but now we can't come up with the money. We're now going to pay in installments. So he had to finance the deal. Yeah. So that's deal one. So Levy kind of gets burned and puts his tail between his legs, builds another company, also in the locker business called Luxor One. They install lockers in like Manhattan apartment buildings for people who buy a lot and need somewhere to store their stuff. And he goes and, and realizes the error of his ways and hires an M&A firm. A guy named Trip Wolf is a PwC guy and shops the new business, in this case, Luxor One. Effectively gets five unique offers for Luxor One and goes through a process of playing one off the other, gently nudging each up higher and higher and higher and higher. Ultimately, the first round of offers, all five, were plus or minus 10%. Over that auctioning process, he managed to triple his closing offer and it consummated a deal at three times the value of the original offers. That's a 60-day window that he pushed up the value. And again, he's a perfect example of what the mess you can make if you, if you do it on your own versus if you hire a guy like Trip who, who knows what right. they're doing. Look, no one sells their house on their own. Well, few people no. do. And, and in those cases, you're not going to know the buyer. In these cases, you're going to be living with the buyer after a contentious negotiation. So you really want some independent voice in there. Also, everything you said I've heard was true. I have numerous friends who've sold their businesses, companies I've talked to them. And look, a lot of people out there with the business have gotten a call from associates at private equity firms, right? Mm -hmm. Their job is to call because the best deals that those (laughs) firms do are the ones that they find where there's no competition and the business is not ready to sell. That's why those associates dial for dollars all day. Uh, And and it's why people try to preempt a a, a process because just what you said before, when you are ready, when you are locked and loaded, when you have all the stuff to show to someone, and then you, and they know if you're not interested, someone else is, is ready to go. I have heard multiple times when someone tried to come to a deal with them before they had representation, that deal is always 30 to 50% (laughs) lower than they got in a competitive process. Absolutely. And the deal gets retraded, it gets, you know, right. due diligence gets protracted. So you didn't hire that banker because they were $500,000 success fee and you sold your business for $6 million less. Like it, it, it doesn't, <laughs> it's really bad logic, right? Yeah. I, I, I always say you can tell, you can tell where the banker thinks they're going to sell your business based on where they start their 
their incentives and their escalators. But I, I, I've heard a lot of people think they're very, you know, they want to do it themselves. They want to be cheap. It's the same thing. I would just tell people to think back to when you started your business and you did all that stuff cheap and like (laughs) it haunted you years later. Totally, totally. And, And look, these guys in private equity groups, strategic buyers, like they're sophisticated. They're yeah. among the most sophisticated business people on the planet. And what they do really, really well is lure entrepreneurs into a prop deal. And a prop deal is what you just described, Bob. It's a proprietary deal where they've got exclusive access to a company that they want to buy. And a prop deal is like the the panacea for these guys, right? Because they effectively can offer you much lower than your company's worth in a competitive auction. And in essence, what they will often do is, is protract diligence to a point where they can then retrade, which is lowering the price. It's but it, it, for a lot. Look, there are a lot of great private equity firms out there. Oh, like, for sure. But let's also be clear. No, no. I was going to say there are some who whose business model is to lock you up and retrade you. Yes. Yeah. It's like in the <laughs> it's in the operations it's in the manual. Yeah. It reminds you of Dan Martell. So I had I had Dan. I interviewed Dan for the book and the, the podcast, and I asked him like, you know, how did you get away from? this prop deal thing. And he said, well, it was easy because he had Clarity FM, which was a company that he thought would be acquired by one of the three, one of three big media companies in Manhattan. And this goes back before the pandemic when we could physically get together. So he organizes a cocktail party, an event for his business in Manhattan. He's some Toronto guy. And who does he invite to the cocktail party along with some customers and vendors and so forth? Of course, the three buyers that would naturally want to buy his company. <laughs> and so it was a very subtle way for him to communicate to those yeah. buyers that, hey, if you ever want to buy us, you're going to be competing with these two other guys. There's no prop deals. And I thought it was brilliant without... Because part of stuff, and Bob, you know this, there's subtlety to this, right? Like if you're too bombastic and over the top and you're like, I'm you know, I'm shopping my deal, I'm going to five competitors in, and you start being way over the top... Nobody wants to deal with a dickhead. And most acquirers yeah. are going to look at that and go, yeah, no, move on. <laughs> right? Yeah, look, so, and, and there's, li- look, there's lying. And, and oh, we got a lot of people interested. And then, and then when you don't, right, you have to go back on that. But if you have three people interested and you can say that with confidence and honest, honestly, then, then that helps your positioning. Oh, my gosh. James Murphy built Viviscal, which is like a... Uh, hair loss treatment for women. He got like Reese Witherspoon to endorse it. So he builds this company up to 50 million euros, Irish guy, and does a process, right? He goes out and gets 12 acquirers to bid. He gets 12 letters of intent. So think about like, you don't have to overplay your hand. You don't have to be ballsy and and, like overstate what you've got. He had 12 letters of intent. He just went methodically playing one off the other, say, okay, so we go to 12, down to eight. Let's do another round of bidding. Here we're eight, now we're three. Great, let's do another. Anyways, long story short, he got $165 million for his 50 million, uh, 165 million euros, excuse me, for his 50 million euro turnover company. Again, never going to happen without a competitive auction. But if he had been a bombastic, over-the-top, overplaying his hand, boastful, a lot of those buyers, I believe, would have walked. Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah. And and right, it is that right balance of 
you don't want to overplay your hands, but you want to let people know you have a, a process. So, mm-hmm. what well, one thing you you and I thing you shared uh, is this concept of uh, how entrepreneurs live life in ten year chunks. Can mm. you kind of explain a little bit what that means in in terms of the 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 business growth and exit kind of strategy? Well, look, I you know, like I think there's a lot of downsides for being your own boss, right? Like no health plan, you got to work all hours of the day and night. I mean, it's, there's tons and tons and tons of downsides. Your boss is a jerk. Your your boss is a jerk. A little narcissistic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to look in the mirror every night. You know, blah blah blah. So there's a ton of bad stuff. The one good thing about choosing entrepreneurship as a career versus going to work at Procter and Gamble or Ford or whatever is that you could take your foot off of the career ladder and take a break, right? If you're on partner track at a law firm, there's no like two-year sabbatical. You can't just like say, I'm out of here for a couple of years. I'll come back and you can make me partner then. No, no, you you leave, you're done. Yet entrepreneurship is, it gives you that luxury. And I think that is such a, I, you know, I've lived this myself personally. When I sold my last company, my wife and I, we, we had young kids at the time, very young kids. We decided to move to Europe and we, we lived in France for three years. And it was, it was to this day, one of the most special times of our lives. And it was a total release from, from work. And it would never have been possible had I worked at that radio station. Had I stayed with that radio station, kind of trudging up the career ladder, you know, as so many, you know, people who work for uh, companies do. And so I think it's a real luxury as an entrepreneur to create a business, build some value and sell. And so many people think selling is synonymous with retirement. In fact, they're oftentimes mix up the words. Like you say, hey, have you ever thought about selling? And they'll be like, yeah, I got to retire sometime. And like, to me, it's just, it, it's mind blowing. I'm like, that, it, they're not the same thing, right? You could sell a company and then go do something else and start something else, write a book, whatever. Anyways, this concept of life in tenure chunks. So, you know, start a business, build it up, sell it, take a break, repeat. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, it's a whole separate issue, but a lot of people think that they're going to have some euphoria after, after the sale. And, and actually <laughs> been a lot of, I, I heard a lot of speakers talk about it. They're, people are pretty lost and depressed. They had tied a lot of their identity to the business. So there's a, there's an emotional side of preparing for that too. Oh yeah. I, I interviewed a guy named Bobby Martin, who, who was the most eloquent on this topic of depression after the sale. So he built a company first research up to uh, about $6 million in revenue. And along the way, he really treated his company like a frat house, right? All his buddies, he hired his buddies. They all partied on Friday night, he had big barbecues. And he was always, he and I competed a little in a kind of in a, in a sort of indirect way. So I got a chance to see it firsthand. I was at trade shows with him, and I was always a little jealous of the culture he'd created. But anyways, long story short, he gets an offer from Dun and Bradstreet, and they're going to write him an enormous check. I think, if memory serves, it was like twenty six million bucks for a six million dollar company. It was like it was a ridiculous kind of once in a lifetime, can't say no kind of offer. So what does he do? He takes the offer, and he didn't think through how he would tell his employees, these buddies of his that he'd been you know, building this company. And I interviewed him. So he said, he spoke about it very candidly. He said, you know, like, I just felt like I was lost. I'd lost my identity, but also lost a lot of the friends that I'd created. And uh, he went through a period of depression. He, he became estranged from his wife and three kids. I mean, it's a really, really tragic story. Luckily, he's pulled himself out of it, got everything together with his family. And he, he wrote a book about it called uh, The Hockey Stick Principles. But uh, long story short, I had a chance to interview him and I said, like, what'd you learn from that? He's like, you know, I wish I'd thought through kind of like how I was going to tell my employees who I was going to sort of give a gift to, just how I was going to treat them because that made me feel so estranged from the people that had helped me along the way. So when you talk about employees, that story always comes to mind. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The find a time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet. No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, 
Head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. Well, as I said before, you have your your trilogy of books. Um, you know, the latest is is actually about the exit, uh, the art of selling your business. So there's the art and there's there's the science. Um, I, I think the most common question, maybe people listening now who might be in this position or burning question is, how do you know when it's the right time to sell? Mm, man, I mean, it is a really <laughs> unique time in history right now, yeah. right? You've seen this, Bob, firsthand. The, it is a very, very, very active M&A market right now. And, and of course, the reason for that is interest rates. We're, we're at historical, like emergency level interest rates, which are rightly trying to you know kickstart the economy and, and help people that are in, in, in very desperate situation. However, it has the other impact that it makes private equity groups who are the natural acquirers for most of the companies listening to this show, it makes it very, very attractive for them to buy companies because private equity companies run on debt. They use debt in order to lever up the acquisitions. And as debt is basically free right now, it makes it very, very easy to get a return on investment when they buy a company. So it is a, it is a historically wonderful time. And at the same time, it's one of those times where I think a lot of entrepreneurs will ride it right over the top. And what I mean by that is effectively miss out on the opportunity. I'm reminded of Rand Fishkin. Rand, have you had Rand on the show? He built, yeah. SEO Moz, yeah. SEO Moz, yeah. So Rand builds his company, SEO Moz. Beautiful company, $5 million in revenue. It's growing like stink. He's expecting it to be $10 million. He's heard that companies like that should trade at four times top line revenue. So he figures, look, if, if I'm going to 10, we're worth 40. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll stop you for one, so one. Let me just stop you for one second and then finish the story. But I was going to say, I have never met an entrepreneur with a growth company who doesn't get in the mindset. But if I'm growing, then next year is going to be even better, right? I mean, yeah. that the logic <laughs> so never true. stops. Yeah. We are the eternal <laughs> optimists. So, and Rand does a beautiful, you got a bit, if you haven't got it, it's a book called Lost and Founder. He talks about it in the, yeah. in the book. It's a wonderful story. Anyway, he, so he figures it's 40. Brian Halligan from HubSpot walks along and says, hey, Ma, uh, Rand, I love what you're doing. We want to buy your company. We're going to pay 25 million bucks of cash and HubSpot stock. Fishkin says, no, it's got to be 40. Halligan walks. Fishkin takes venture capital money in lieu of you know selling to HubSpot instead of and, and effectively they start to get into product lines they have no business being in and the business falters. Rand personally goes through a period of depression and the VCs remove him as the CEO of his own company. He's on the sidelines and I said to him like what's your stake in in Ma's worth these days? And he said, you know, John, it's probably not worth anything because the way VCs invest is they get preferred returns, right? And they've held for long enough that the preferred return is likely going to wipe me out of any value. And I said, what would that that offer from HubSpot have been worth, just given the appreciation of HubSpot stock? And he said, yeah, it'd be worth close to $200 million. And I, and I just, that story for me is indicative of this idea of like, when's the best time to sell? The best time to sell is when you get an offer and, and you're in the driver's seat. Do you believe in the envelope theory? Uh, like you should, I've heard people say like, put, put in an envelope, you know, what is enough for you? And, and, if, and if someone offers it to you, don't move the needle <laughs> on it because you're very likely to say, well, if I just got X percent more. Yeah, there's there's an envelope in, in the book built to sell where the guy oh, writes yeah. his, his number down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, look, I do because we are all creatures of habit and we tend to, as we achieve a goal, we tend to move the yardsticks. And I think, I believe in this thing called the freedom point. And, and, and the freedom point is the point at which the sale of your company will generate enough liquid wealth that you could live for the rest of your life on the proceeds of that nest egg. And when you reach that, I think it's worth asking are you prepared to risk financial freedom, which you've earned, for the next shiny ball, the next tranche of revenue, the next location, the next product launch? Because effectively, that's what you're doing. When you are like majority shareholder in a business that's grown to be a big chunk of your net worth, you're effectively risking financial freedom, which you could get by selling, for what will have no material impact on your lifestyle. Again, there are lots of reasons to build a business, fulfillment, creativity, change the world. All that is great. But most entrepreneurs are seeking freedom, right? I mean, that, that right. Is, 
Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> the point. And there and and there's nothing more, you know, freeing than having a nest egg put aside that effectively will generate enough cash for your family to live for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you have to stop working. It, it means that you are financially free and can do what you want, including starting another business or not, if you prefer. That freedom, I think, is what is the essence of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And we risk it. Every day we stay in a business that we own 100% and it's like 80% of our net worth. Effectively, what we're doing is risking that freedom in return for something we may not actually want. Wasn't it like Buffett who said, you know, what's insane to me is, is risking something that you want for something you hardly want, like you, you don't yeah. really desire. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but the essence is, uh, is clear, I hope. Yeah, and we might think that more makes you happy, but it doesn't. I, I'm curious, so a framework that someone shared with me once, I don't know who it was, so maybe I can steal it, but which I thought was really good. They said, think of it as a two by two matrix of, this is maybe like it's congruous or incongruous to, to what you just said. This dude must have gone to business school, by the well, way. Well, yeah, <laughs> McKinsey <laughs> matrix. Yeah, Because you're talking about the financial impact, but but in terms of, and I know there's, look, there's a lot of FOMO right now, people who maybe it's not a good time, but they're struggling because all their friends are. But he said, yeah. look, it's a two by two matrix of, do you like your business? and you know what you want to do next. So on, if you manage one side and it's, I don't like my business, I know what I want to do next, like you should really sell. If you love your business and you have no idea what you want to do next, like you probably might not want to sell. And then the other <laughs> two are kind of neutral. And I actually thought that was a good way to think of it. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of a guy named Sean Oshman. Again, story from the book. I, I, I love this story because it is exactly what you're describing in this two by two. He built a, a little IT services company, a couple million in revenue, lives in Denver, Colorado, right? At the age of 39, he wakes up and says, I really want to live on a sailboat. Like I'm, I'm done with Denver. I'm done with landlock. You know, I want to live on a sailboat. So he says, by 40, I want to be on my sailboat. So he goes and he t gets a broker to sell his company. He sells it for 2.6 times SDE, which is seller's discretionary earnings. And I, I asked him, I, I said, like, that's not a huge exit, right? Like that's a pretty average sale for yeah. a, a relatively small business. And he said, yeah, but John, you're missing the point. And I was like, well, what's that? And he's like, I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and, and you know, like I'm living on a sailboat with my fiance, like I'm good. Right. <laughs> and, and so for him, the, what he, he wanted back to go do, off the treadmill and, and yeah. right, looked at yeah. what he actually wanted. He was clear on his pull factors, which is like, you know, living life on a sailboat. And so I agree with you. I think once you have got a really good pull factor, something you're excited to go do next, man, and you're in the spot where you're not loving the prospects of growing your business to the next level, I think, uh, I think that's a great time. All right, John, let's, let we go on forever, but last question for you. And, and you can tie this directly to the, the content if you want, but I always ask, what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made? And it could be singular or repeated that you've learned the most from in your career. Oh man, there's so many. Um, Maybe what's the selling mistake? Would that help uh, narrow it down? Yeah, look, I, I think... I think having done all the interviews that I've done for Built to Sell Radio, I think one of the things that I have seen again and again is the importance of creating a competitive marketplace for your company. And I know I've made that mistake in, in past businesses where I sort of fell into the arms of a, of a willing acquirer. And, and unfortunately, it, it's not the most effective way to sell a company. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've interviewed who do that almost justify the reasons. I did an interview yesterday for, with a guy who is quite proud of the fact that he he didn't shop his deal. He sold it to a partner of his. And I get it. It's a less disruptive way to sell your business. But man, you've got, you've got one opportunity to do this. And one of the most common regrets that we hear from entrepreneurs is that they wished, they, they wonder, did I leave money on the table? And it hits them at the most bizarre times, but they hear a story of somebody else, you know, selling it and they think, oh my gosh, that guy got what for what? And they wonder, did I leave money on the table? And the only way you'll know that, the only way you'll feel confident that you did not leave money on the table is to create competitive tension for your deal, to create multiple offers. And when you do that, you can feel fairly confident that you got a fair price. If you don't, I worry that perhaps one day in the future, you'll wake up and go, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? And, and that's just, that's a horrible feeling. It is the number one piece of advice I give people based on talking to 
peers and hearing their experience. And I, I agree with you. I've heard the same thing. People say, oh, well, this just fell in my lap and we did the thing. And, I, and then I hear every other story about the the multiple they got once they added a, <laughs> created a competitive market space. And I, I, I have the same, very similar thoughts. So I've, I've shared that advice with a lot of people, <laughs> even when they didn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Well, John, where can people learn more about you, your books, and, and your podcast? Well, I think just builttosell.com is where if you opt in, there's like a, you'll get a new episode of Built to Sell Radio every week, and it's a different entrepreneur who has sold their company. And it's just their, their lessons learned and secrets from selling. So it's free and it goes out every Wednesday. So yeah, just drop your email into builttosell.com if you want that. All right, John, thanks for joining us today. Uh, always enjoyed this and we'll, we'll have to do it again. Let's do it again, Bob. It's fun. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to John and his work and his new book on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Speaking of today's episode, if you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review. It is the best way for new users to discover uh, the content and learn about from great people like John. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. Till next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.